Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, before we get to Amanda Carpenter, let me just say thank you to each and every one of you who has supported my new book, which came out last week, Befriending Your Monsters. I am deeply grateful for everyone who has uh, tweeted about it, posted on Instagram or Facebook, who shared a link, who uh, sent a review, who uh, you know bought a copy, who bought 10 copies, who decided that all their family needs to become a better and truer version of themselves, so they gave them their own individual copies of the book. Thank you to each and every one of you who did that. It means the world to me. One of the things that uh, I realize is, these, uh, is writing in a book like this one is uh, it's not just a few words uh, on a piece of paper, and it's not just a couple ideas that uh, I read about or I learned in grad school. This is, in some ways, like the, the, the culmination of a lot of things that God has been doing in my life over uh, the last couple of years. Uh, honestly, I sent a copy to a friend of the show, Sean Palmer, down in Houston, and he texted me. He goes, hey, I think you sent me a rough draft of this in 2014. So this is something that's been uh, in the back of my mind uh, for for years and years and years, and I've been working on it. And uh, to to write, I don't, I don't, I probably wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to write in in the degree that I did for God Over Good and Befriending Your Monsters with uh, without the listeners for the podcast and and those who supported the podcast. So I, I'm deeply grateful for the way that you all, uh, even just by listening to the podcast, uh, have have helped me uh, to have this opportunity. So uh, I'm very excited for what you. Uh, what y'all have done and get behind the book and uh, those of you who still uh, want to go get a copy please do we've got them obviously on Amazon you can get it um, also an audible version if you want to go to audible if you're like hey I uh, don't want to read it but I just want someone to read it to me that's that's audible for you so check that out and uh, if you haven't uh, please go leave a, a review on on Amazon those are very important and they really make it a whole lot uh, easier for people like me to keep writing our books because more people buy this one, which means I have a better chance to get the next one out there. So um, all the support is is very, very appreciated. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, we're continuing the Monster Month talking about what from kind of my experience uh, of all the, the press and interviews and stuff I've been doing. Uh, it, it, it's the monster that most people want to talk about, the monster of comparison. So Amanda Carpenter, here we go. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have on for the first time coming to us from Chicago. What part of Chicago? We're right in Chicago. We're in Hilton on the southwest side, but we're in Chicago. Do I say the south side of Chicago? Can I say that? Uh, No. No, we're not quite on the south side. (laughs) What is the difference? If you're on... Oh, oh, I should say your name. Manda Carpenter. Welcome to the show. What is the difference of southwest and south? Because to me, like, that's still south, but it's not? Well, we're southwest of, like, if you were right smack dab downtown, but we're definitely not south-siders. If you were to say we were on the south side that people would probably want to beat you up because we're not. <laughs> gotcha. So Southside is not like North and it's not like half. It's a specific region of Chicago. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's good to know. Uh, I, I just assume like it's, the, you know, Chicago is big deal. Last dance, Michael Jordan, all that stuff going on. What's Dude, it like? I don't even like sports really, but my husband, E and I, yeah, you know, Carp, my husband, Carp. Mm-hmm. we, yeah, I call him E, you guys call him Carp. Anyways, so for people that might get confused, E is Carp. Same person. I have one husband, not two. We Thanks. are loving the last dance. Like I, again, I'm not into sports and I'm suddenly like the biggest MJ fan ever. <laughs> my a, little, do- yeah. a little late to the party. My my oldest daughter, Avery, she's 
she's all in. Like she's watched, I, I've said this last week, I say it again. It is the edited version that my children have watched, or my oldest, and uh, she loves Michael Jordan now. And so they're like, Lebr- I think LeBron's not as good as Michael Jordan now. So they're, I, yeah, they've, they've taken a side. They've taken Fighting a side. words, I like it. Yeah, I know. Okay, so uh, Amanda Carpenter, now you haven't heard this yet, um, but we recorded with Annie and she had effusive praise for you. She talked about how wonderful you are. You have like the the Amanda Carpenter fan club president has to be Annie F. Downs. <laughs> That's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. I love Annie. She's been just an incredible uh, friend and honestly like a mentor in the space of writing and yeah, doing whatever it is that I do. <laughs> Yeah, whatever it is. Okay, well, let's get into what it it is that you do. Now, you went Bethel College. Right? I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you teaching degree? Is that right? I did. Good. Yeah. Good memory. Yeah. Yep. I went to school to be a teacher. Always wanted to teach. Taught high school Spanish right out of college. Then decided it was a little weird to be twenty two teaching seventeen eighteen year olds. So I yeah. stepped down um, and taught sixth grade general education instead of Spanish. Then fourth. Then first. And then I quit. It's like the slow step down to like, I'm done. Like they get yeah. smaller and smaller and then they don't even exist anymore. That's Yeah. F- first graders did me in. Yeah. They're a little much for you. Was first what? grader harder than high school? Oh my gosh. Yes. For my personality. Yeah. Really? How oh. so? Tell me more. I'm just not very patient. I laugh. <laughs> and uh, high schoolers, at the very least, I could be like, you know better. First graders, they don't actually know better. So that mm-hmm. just frustrated mm-hmm. me. Yeah. They, they actually do not know better. I've... Looked at my children before, like, you should, nope, you're a child. That's, this is what you're supposed to do. Yep, exactly. So I love teaching and I love kids, but I don't love them in the same room. <laughs> How's your Spanish? Uh, not very good anymore because I haven't used it in like five years, but it yeah. was really, really great. And I think when I travel, it comes back. So if I'm in like Central or South America, it comes right back. But otherwise, I don't get to use it enough. Otherwise, no. No me gusta. Yeah. Espanol. I, I got nothing. I did, I got Not nothing. quite. No. El baño? I know that. Uh, Donde esta el baño? There you go. Uh, that's all you need to know. Where's the bathroom? That's it's pretty, guacamole? Is that, is that technically Spanish or is that just a... I'm, I'm going to go with it. It's Spanish. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, go to school. You taught for a while. Uh, obviously, you're married to uh, Carp, uh, who... Some people know as E. Actually, no one knows him but you. That When I first met you guys, that was the weirdest thing, that you and everyone else call him a different name, which is, you know, whatever. Who's, who's to say the right thing? I assume his wife is the, the one to say the right thing. But y- you guys you. are married, and you've been involved in foster parenting. Am I using the terminology correctly? Foster parenting? Yeah, we've been foster parents. Mm-hmm. For how long now? Almost three years. Okay. Tell me how, how you got into that. Yeah. Well, there's a long story, but I'll sum it up by saying that I had a really rough childhood. And when I was seven, an incident occurred in my family and my biological father lost custody of me. He went to jail and my stepmom at the time went to the hospital and I was taken um, into custody of the state. Now, my biological mom has always been Uh, just solid in my life. And so I had a very, very brief encounter with foster care. I was not, I did not end up becoming a ward of the state, having to bounce around in numerous homes and actually being a foster kid. But that brief encounter in my life, I feel like God used that catastrophe to be the catalyst for my calling. And I just always knew from that day forward, like from seven years old, 
I think God just like planted a seed in my heart that I was going to be a foster parent for kids like me. Like for the first time in my life, I knew that not every kid has a safe, stable, healthy environment to grow up in. And I wanted to be a place to provide that for those kids. So it was always like a non-negotiable for me as I grew up. And, you know, if I were going to get married, it was like, well, if I'm going to do this with someone, like obviously they need to be on board, but I was ready to do it alone and, and be single. I actually had no desire to get married. But then I met E, or as you call him, Card, <laughs> and he won my heart, which is obvious. Have you ever seen him? He's the cutest yeah. guy ever. I, I honestly will co-sign. I mean, he's a good-looking man. We can we can all agree <laughs> on that. That's just a true statement. Yeah. So he had no experience with foster care, really no awareness of it. I would say he was probably like your average person who, unless there's a reason you've encountered this, you don't know much about it. Mm-hmm. And so I obviously as we dated, like he got to know my story. He took an interest more and more in the needs that exist. And it was like his passion for it grew. And he always tells people like what Manda loved, I loved too, you know, like my passion grew his passion. And so by the time we were actually engaged, it was like, we're going to do this when we're married. And so we were married for two years and then started the process to get our license. Wow. Okay. And so that was, so three years ago, your first foster kid came into your family. Yep. And since then, uh, how many different uh, young people have been a part of your family? Yeah, we have had 16, what I call little loves, but they're not little. We've had a 17 year old girl, a 14 year old boy, and then, you know, everything down to one years old. We've never had Um, like a newborn baby or anything, but we are now specialized foster parents, which means we only take in the kids who have more severe behavioral or medical challenges. And the average age of those youth are 12 or or older typically. So right now we, we pretty much focus on the big kids. Wow. Now I've heard you, or I've I've seen you use the phrase a whole bunch, get too attached, right? What is, is that exactly what you say, right? Get too attached. Yeah, that's exactly what I say. I mean, I think any foster parent will tell you the most annoying thing people could ever say to us is, oh, I could never do what you do. I'd get too attached. It's like, well, no crap, Sherlock. Sorry, I don't know if your (laughs) podcast allows allows for language, so I'll filter myself. But it's like, yeah, I'm not like some cold-hearted human being who doesn't get too attached. Like that's kind of the whole point. That's what these kids need. And that's exactly what we do. So that's where that phrase for me really like why I'm so passionate about it, but it also kind of developed this deeper meaning the longer we did it, which is I believe in getting too attached to the whole family and not just this cute kid that you welcome into your care, but like, how can you foster not just a child, but their whole family? How can you develop a relationship with their parents and, and fight for redemption, even if reunification can't happen, which is the primary goal within foster care, how can we still fight for that redemption story? And I believe uh, in large part, it's by getting too attached to everyone. Okay. But when some of us would say, oh, don't get too attached because there's going to be heartbreak and like this young kid is in your life, you, you love them, they become part of your family, and then all of a sudden they're, they're gone. That for 16 kids, obviously there's been 14 that are no longer in your household right now. That's like, that's got to be super painful, right? Absolutely. It is painful, but we choose to go through that pain because these kids did not have a choice. They didn't have a choice when they entered care. And, you know, that's why we make the hard choice that we make. And 
even though it's painful, I will say there's an, I feel like I hold an unpopular view about reunification in that sometimes, let me be honest, I am ready for that kid to go. I feel like no foster parent ever wants to admit that. And maybe they're just all saints, but I am not. And there are some kids that I cannot wait till they're gone. And I try not to like, obviously ever like let them feel that from me. But I'm just being honest that for as much as we worry that we'll get too attached and we'll fall in love and it's going to be so hard to say goodbye, there are also kids that are just not a great fit for your home that you're just like, oh, I hope they find a relative or man, I really hope they can return soon or, or it's just hard, you know? So yeah. there's also that side of it. Well, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I have gone up to my kid's school and seen some of those kids and be like, yeah, I don't want those kids in my house. That's <laughs> terrible. I don't mean that. But, you know, I, it's everyone probably thinks that. Right, and so totally that only that only is natural. I, yeah, there's no judgment from from my end on that. Do you see? Um, uh, th- th- if this is too personal. We can just pass on the subject. But having biological kids and foster kids is it either or? Or do you have a, a, a vision for how both of those could be in the, someone's life? Yeah, absolutely. It's there's no question that's too personal for me. I we Eric and I don't know if we can have biological kids. We've never tried. We've always prevented. Um, that's not something I desire at this time, and so we'll see if it's a desire in the future. But I feel like from what I hear consistently from my fellow foster mom friends who have biological children, which is the majority of foster parents, most people do not foster until they've kind of decided they're done having biological kids, and then it's like, oh, we've got three. Let's throw one more into the mix. Um, So I feel like it's been rare and interesting to be a foster parent without biological kids. But what I hear consistently from those foster parents is that it will impact your biological kids, but I think it impacts them in the best ways. It, it grows their empathy. It, it helps them to really just see how fortunate and blessed they are and how they can give back and how they can. Um, I think it helps children develop an abundance mindset in the sense that they now have to share their mom and dad. They have to share the love. They have to share the toys. And so from all of my friends who have biological kids and choose to foster, they have nothing but positive things to say about how it impacts their kids. Yeah. Uh, When I was growing up in Philadelphia, one of our closest family friends was a family that did foster parenting. And so they had uh, one, uh, their biological son was around my age. And uh, so Jeff had just like this, uh, I would say a steady stream, but multiple different kids who were part of his family for a short period of time. And I never remember him thinking, oh, this is terrible. This is the worst thing in the world. And I can only imagine like it creates this empathy, like you said, for other people and their plight uh, because it's it's not always an ideal home that everyone gets born into. Uh, You have a book that uh, you're actually, big deadline this week. Thank you for jumping uh, into the podcast in the middle of a busy week. And uh, it comes out in a year from now, but that's how the writing process works. Um, How much of this are you going to talk about in the book? About foster care specifically? Or just like what you've learned in the foster care process and yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, it's funny because... I've had a lot of people be like, Ooh, what's your forthcoming book about? Like you to online, you talk a lot about foster care. You talk a lot about marriage. You talk a lot about Jesus. You talk about, you know, just so many different things, racism and fighting, you know, just, there's a lot that comes up if you follow me. And it's funny because the book isn't about any one of those things, but the book definitely, all of those things are woven in because they're all a part of my story and my yep. passion. So they, there's a lot in there, but it is not a book about any one of those things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are you even talking publicly about what the book is about? Yeah, sure. No, you don't have, I don't, 
we don't have to. I'm not asking you to pitch it. I was just wondering if you are. Because I know some people are, are like, you know, they want to hold on to it till it's completely done. But, you know, from my experience, when you talk to someone when the book comes out, which, by the way, like, I do a lot of podcasts like this. So I think that's, like, that's good and all that. And a lot of times that's the availability and all that's there. So great. But I've also done podcasts where I could tell. I, I did a podcast once with um, Rob Bell when he was probably the same stage of writing that you're in right now for his book, um, like, How to Be Here. I forget the title of it. And I remember when the book came out a year from now, I was like, you said all this stuff on the podcast that we did because that's when it was freshest and most exciting and hadn't been like revised to death and edited and micromanaged and all that. So there's something about where you are right now that I wish there was more publicity for books at that stage. But then again, no one would remember, hey, I need to buy this book a year from now. Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean. Um, and yeah, I'm super open about it. I, I just won't share the title because I have gone back and forth on the title yeah. so many times that I'm just like, well, I might as well just hold that till we know for sure. But yeah, but yeah my, my book, it's, it's so much about how we can heal the things that we'd rather hide and why that's so important. I mean, if I, if I had to put it into one sentence, that is my journey and that is what it's about. Mm-hmm. You had a, a great allurative statement a second ago. Your calling came from your, there was some sea warrior, yeah. was it? Not I, I know warrior, but uh, a different. Yeah, I know what you're referring to, that my, that my, that, that catastrophe was the yeah. catalyst for my calling. Yeah. Yeah. That's in a book somewhere. Like that sounds too good. You didn't just come up with it. No offense. Maybe you did, but. I think I did. I didn't really? get it from anyone. I was uh, no. I think that's in your book. It should be in your book. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I got it from anyone. Um, yes, nope. it does. It does come up in the book for sure. Yeah, of course. I was just saying, like, I was like, yeah, that's in a book somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Sticky statements. Yeah, it worked. It worked. Okay, that's good stuff. Um, okay, so here's the thing. Um, so I'm doing this uh, month where I'm talking about the different monsters, and uh, so this is when I start talking about myself. Nice transition there, Luke. And uh, <laughs> one of the reasons I want to talk about you have you on the podcast not only is because annie said you're amazing and i have to because annie said it but because i've seen some of your stuff online talks about the idea of comparison and that you talk about comparison a lot and and in my book i talk about three different monsters and one of those is comparison so i want you to be on for the month in which or the week in which i talk about comparison now um you we've talked beforehand and you said you know comparison isn't something that you per se wrestle with a ton it's not it's not your quote-unquote monster that you struggle with but you find yourself still talking about a lot why do you think that is i think it's because it is the monster that so many people struggle with and Mm -hmm. i think it's a monster that we see um growing because of where our society and culture and the way technology i just think the way the world works right now it's it's a monster that becomes really evident yeah there, there's a quote um, in uh, Adam Alter's book on technology where he observes that uh, the reason that uh, Zuckerberger bought Instagram is because both of them have a, a shared understanding that people live constantly in comparison of each other. And so the reason Instagram and Facebook work is because we're always seeking to compare ourselves. Now we just do it in real time. Yeah, I, I think that's so spot on. Sadly, I, I think it's, re- it's very true. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. You're obviously someone who's on social media. Uh, I, I guess most people are on social media these days. W- when you're thinking of comparison, as you're engaging with social media and as you're creating a presence that you know is being a voice that brings a lot of encouragement and life to people, how do you balance that propensity to say, oh, this is someone else doing and you know it's bigger or it's smaller, it's better, it's worse than mine? Like, how, do you, how do you safeguard that for yourself? So tell me if this doesn't answer your question. This is where my mind went. Okay. 
when I get on social media, the, the type of user I am with social media is I'm like a content creator. I put things out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not really using it the way it was intended to like for social purposes. Like I'm not just posting, Oh, I just went to the park with my kids. Um, maybe occasionally you'll see that in my stories, but for the most part, I don't really use it the way it was intended to stay connected to people. I feel like I stay connected with people by calling them and by texting them and by seeing them in real life and, and actually doing life with them. I use it more for the purpose within my career to bring awareness to people, to educate people, to inspire people, to activate them, to call them to, to do something. Um, because of the way that I use it, I don't feel like it's as easy for me to go down that slippery slope of comparing because I'm not actually on that much. So it's funny. I'm probably on the same amount of time as people. So, so I take that statement back. I'm probably on the same amount of time as your average person, whatever that is. Okay. Let's just hypothetically go there for a second. Let's say I'm on there for an hour and a half every day on Instagram. Let's just say maybe, uh, I'm making up a name here. Maybe Kate is on Instagram an hour and a half every day too. But her hour and a half is she posts something and then, or maybe she doesn't, but she's lurking, she's scrolling, she's um, just kind of looking at what everyone else is doing in their life. And of course, thoughts are going to bubble up for her. For me, I'm rarely on there to scroll through and look at other people's stuff. And that sounds really selfish. It sounds like I'm saying I just get on to do my thing and get off. And that's exactly what I'm saying. So if it sounds selfish, it's actually very purposeful but it's the truth. I don't really get on there a ton to interact with people, but I am mindful that when I get on to interact with people, it's for a purpose. It's to celebrate them. It's to ask questions. It's to engage. It's not just to observe. And I think that's a key thing that's helped me not go down that slippery slope of comparison. Because if I spend too much time on there where I'm just looking and observing, uh, one, it kills my creativity and two, it just makes me feel bad about myself because then I start to notice, I'm, I basically start to forget about all the blessings in my life because I'm too busy looking at theirs. Yeah. I guess that's one way to say, Luke, I'm not going to like your picture that you posted today. Uh, and I'll, <laughs> I'll take that. That's fine. Okay. If you don't want to like my stuff, that's fine. You don't have to like my picture, but uh, whatever. Um, oh. You know, Carp does, but that's okay. Um, I'm not better about it. No. I think you're exactly right, though. I think it, it does kill your creativity. And I think when... When it's always on, like when you're always, especially like always the lurking, it, it does minimize your ability to sit and be still, which I think is like the foundation from which any like creative effort comes out of and upon. And uh, yeah, no, I, I think there needs to be some like purpose and strategy for it. So w- one of the things that, uh, you know, I are, you know, argue in my book is that there's this idea of like comparisons that you have someone who's typically above you in whatever level that you look at. And the, the pull of the monster of comparison is that obviously it's not really about that person. It never was about that person in the first place. Obviously it's not. But what happens is it causes you to like lose your own sense of understanding of who you are. And comparison puts us on like this, this sliding scale where all of a sudden whatever I have is only as good as it stands up next to you. And so th- there's research that says, if uh, if you were told, like the average person, if they're told you can make uh, like $80,000 a year and everyone around you made 70000 a year, would you rather have that job or you make 90000 a year and everyone around you makes one hundred and ten? The majority of people would say, I'd actually rather have less money overall as long as it's more than the people around me. And I like, I, I get it because 
what you have, what you drive, what you wear, where you go, it seems good based upon the people around you. Because ultimately, mm-hmm. it becomes like the defining thing about how we understand and perceive the world. And so like the solution is that you have to find something more foundational that defines you. When you think of ways that people can be grounded and have this foundation instead of like the sliding scale that social media creates, wh- what are ways that you think people can get grounded and, and not let that sliding scale of comparison take them where they don't need to go? Yeah. Well, before I answer that, I just want to say preach. Um, that's that's awesome. I, it resonates. It totally makes sense. And I'm sitting here like, oh my gosh, I would definitely take more money, even if everyone around me makes more too. But yeah. but I also see the temptation to want to be in first place, to want to be the best, to yeah. want to make more. So, so it totally makes sense. I'm just chewing on that for a moment. But to answer your question for really how... Can you repeat the question? Because I just want to make sure I actually answer it. Well, I'm just trying to think, like, what I think comparison does is it puts us on a sliding scale in which you, you don't ever have something other than how you stack up to the person, other than the person next to you, wherever they literally are. It's that person you're comparing yourself to. So, so the solution is you have to find something that's stable. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever done yoga or not, but I was in a yoga class one time and I was like falling off balance. And like the teacher said, uh, find a, a steady spot on the floor on the wall. And like your driti, I think, dristi, I think that's how you say it. And if you find a stable spot, no matter how off balance you are, you'll be able to kind of gain more core strength and more, more balance if you have something that's stable. And so I think healthy spirituality is that stable spot so that when you start to get off balance, it kind of centers you again. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that, I mean, that old saying of like the grass is greenest where you water it, right? Yeah. Like don't be too busy looking at somebody else's grass, like worry about watering your own grass and then it becomes greener and don't, don't view it as this race of who's getting ahead. Just, just stay in your lane and do your thing. And I think that's where for me, I have to put blinders up. It doesn't mean I unfollow people that trigger that within me because when I'm triggered in comparison, again, it's about me, not about them. So I don't need to unfollow them because of how I feel. I need to look in the mirror and do some work. And one of the best ways for me to combat comparison is to celebrate that person, authentically celebrate them hard. So it's, it was really hard. I, I am actually having a moment where I'm remembering that one of my friends who's a year younger than me got her book deal two years before I did. Hmm. And we wrote our proposals at the same time. We were with, um, at the time, talking to the same agent. She got picked up by the agent. I did not. Oh. That was hard. Then she gets her book deal. I am just like, you know, out there just like floating around with this proposal, not sure what I'm going to do with it. And it was really difficult not to be envious and compare to to her. I mean, there were times where I noticed some of the ugliness coming out of me because I would see something she wrote online and I'd be like, oh, I basically said that same thing, but I said it better. <laughs> if I'm really honest, yeah, that's where I went. Yeah. But I had to, number one, I called her and I confessed that to her. And I said, I am having a problem with your stuff and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. I take responsibility. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Like I put it all out there. Um, And so for me, the practice of confession is something I talk about a lot. It's a big deal in my life. I take it very seriously. And the minute I spoke those words out loud, they lost their power over me. The minute I confessed to her, I am struggling with comparison in this way. And of course she was like, so gracious, like, oh my gosh, like, you know, that's okay. And she like took the time to just build me up and pour into me even more and make more connections for me so that I could continue down my journey of publishing. But it was like really cool how the moment I said it out loud to her, 
I, I no longer felt that when I read her stuff or, or she was getting celebrated. I went, I went and joined her for part of her book tour and it was so fun. And there was not a, an, a part of me that like held that bitterness or resentment that she got what I always wanted. Oh, that's cool. Uh, since it's in Chicago, I assume you're talking about Michelle Obama. And I, oh, I, I get why you'd compare to that. Uh, Carl Jung has this thing about uh, as long as we let the subconscious remain unearthed, uh, it will dictate our lives and we'll call it fate. And so the, the practice of confession is I'm going to take this out from the subconscious. I'm going to go into the dark. I'm going to befriend that. I'm going to speak it. And then all of a sudden you've defanged that monster because you've spoken out loud. So that's great for you. What did it do for her though? Obviously she responded great. And the response is exactly what anyone maybe would, would try to do. Um, how do you think she felt though when you first said, uh, yeah, I'm kind of jealous of uh, your success? Yeah, I I definitely think it caught her off guard. I don't think she anticipated it. And I think she was probably a little bit hurt because I I was, I'm her friend, you know, and why wouldn't I celebrate her and just be so happy for her and proud of her. So I think it stung, but at the same time, she's also pursuing, you know, following Jesus and, you know, she just gave me grace. And I think too, it probably made her extra conscious, not of what she posted. So not like self-conscious of it, but just really soul conscious of how can I also in the midst of my own success, pull other people up and elevate them too. Yeah. I I like the move. Obviously confession, I think is a great practice as well, but confession and celebration of other people, because the sliding scale is I've got to pull you down so I can get above you. So I feel good about myself. The move you're making is the, like the antithesis that I'm going to push you even higher even if it makes me feel like I'm lower, because to say, hey, I'm jealous of you, like if, if I say that to someone, I feel like, wow, that's making me feel even like lower as a person. I'm, I'm not proud of that. It's almost like you, you're doing the antithesis of what I would naturally, we would naturally do, and that's where you find the healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now it's like, even even before I got this book deal for this book that we just talked about that I'm working on, even even before that, I, you know, I, I, I realized like it may never happen. And I'm kind of going, I could go off into a whole tangent about where we find our worth and I won't go there right now. But what I'll say is I just really had to get to a place. And I think this is just like a Holy spirit thing where it took time and consistent work through mentors in my life to specific older women who are wiser than me who consistently spoke into me just how to live with an abundant mindset. And when you start having an abundance mindset, I mean, now, like, I just want to give everybody every chance, even if it's an opportunity that like, I really want, like, how can I elevate them? How can they get that opportunity? Like, there's room for your book too. There's room for your voice too. Um, it, I feel like that abundance mindset has shifted everything. Yeah, this is the second time you brought up the abundance mindset. And first time you're talking about foster cares with the the, the uh, biological kids and the foster kids. Uh, give us a, like a working definition of, of how you understand what a abundance mindset is. Yeah, I think having an abundance mindset is believing that there is more than enough. That just because she gets a book deal doesn't mean that's one less deal for you. That's not how the world works. It's not like there's a limited number of book deals. And so if she gets one, your chances decrease. That's just not how it works. Or just because your friend gets this brand new house with a pool and a hot tub and like you are so like, I would love if we could afford that someday. Like just because they get it doesn't decrease your chances of getting that someday. So it can apply to anything in our life, whether it's something we're trying to achieve or some material possession we want. 
It can also apply to our life, I think, on a much deeper level in the sense of love and forgiveness and redemption and restoration. You know, like I think I look at people's marriages and when they switch from this scarcity mindset of like, oh, their marriage is so great. They've got it all figured out. And then it makes them feel like, like as if they're less and and that they can't also get there. It's like, if we could shift even abundance in that, like, well, isn't there room for more great marriages? And does every marriage have to look the exact same or could mine be just as great and look different? Like that abundance mindset on a deeper level. I I can go with the, the scarcity mindset, which would be the opposite of the abundance mindset with like the book deal in the house. But when it becomes the marriage, like I don't even logically see how someone can go, wait, there's just one good marriage. It seems like flourishing and and your home doesn't if 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 anything it would be the opposite. Like the more love and positivity in in one surrounding family, it would affect the next. Why do you think that's it? like there's only so like there is the nicest house in the neighborhood. There is like there's not going to be a, a billion books that hit the New York Times bestseller. There'll literally be a, a finite amount. Um, but when it comes to marriages, like there literally is nothing that is limiting their success from being your success. Why do you think that even goes in the mindset that, that we think that way with marriages? So I love that you brought this up because I too have never necessarily struggled with this particularly, but it's the example that came to my mind because it's actually one that has come into my email a a few times now by different women who it's like, it's as if watching another marriage thrive when yours is in a tough spot. I think it's just that comparison of like, Hmm. I I know they want to thrive too, but sometimes the language that's used is as if they can't thrive unless maybe their standard or measurement of what it means to thrive is in relation to other people not thriving as much. Again, it comes back to that sliding scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause I've seen, like I, I had the same story, you know, your friend get a book deal before me and it gets out first. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it takes me you know longer. I, I've 100% seen that. And I, I get that even though I know, like I, I can see where that str- the struggle makes sense to me, right? Like I, I never mm-hmm. felt like, Oh, I'm, you know, judging myself based upon if they did poorly or not like But I, with marriages, it's almost like we don't believe that maybe a good one is out there. Maybe. Right. Or, or that, just because again, they're what, what looks like thriving for them might not look like thriving for you. So sometimes I think we focus way too much on behavior and we try to mimic, like we want our husband to function like her husband. Well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't make, it makes her marriage thrive, but that would, that wouldn't actually make your marriage thrive. Or, or we try to be like, if I try to be the same wife that some of my friends are to their husbands, that would not work in my marriage. (laughs) But if they try to be like me, that wouldn't work in their marriages. So I think it's more of just, we don't own how God created us, how we are wired and what we are put on this earth. How, how really, I think we try so hard to be what we're not. And that is part of the monster of comparison. So if it's not behaviors, because I think you're exactly right. We look at behaviors and go, oh, I want that. So-and-so does this for their spouse. And that's what I want. It's not behaviors. What do you think it is? It, like, if it's not, is... To me, I would go like, is it, are, are you being fully present to who you are and loving 
as you were created to be. It's not behaviors, but it's like, are you living into the full capacity for what you are? Like when, when David puts on Saul's armor to fight Goliath, he's never going to be able to defeat that monster of the Philistines giant Goliath when he's trying to be someone else. But when he's himself, he can be the best version of that. Do you think it's less behaviors and more like the authenticity of who you're created to be? I do. Yeah. I think it's that. And I think it's awareness. So I think it's awareness of ourself, awareness of our motives, awareness of really, I think we being mindful of why it is that we like, sometimes I find myself wanting something. And then when I really dig in deep, I don't want it. I want it because I think I'm supposed to want it because my friend wants it. Huh? For me, that's what it's been like for biological kids. Okay. So I'm kind of coming full circle here on the bio. When you ask about biological kids, I told you it's not a desire for me, but there was a period of time where so many of my friends were getting pregnant or trying to get pregnant and, and kind of walking through that. And I felt like that was maybe what I needed to do as a next step. And I, I was like, well, I never really wanted this, but like, maybe I do want it. And I started second guessing myself and it wasn't until I kind of pulled away I actually went on a solitude retreat in Michigan, a two-day thing by myself. And I really like sat with it. I prayed about it. I journaled about it. And I got to this place where I was like, actually, I don't want biological kids at this point. That may change. I'm not saying this is a forever decision, but I think I am only even feeling like I need to try and start down that path because it's what everyone else is doing and it's what they want. And, and I, and, and some people have even made me feel crazy to not want that. Right. But even that aside, it's like, we can't let other people impact us like that. I think, and the only way to do that is to stay rooted in who we are and that authenticity and that having that awareness. So when I question my motives, whether it's about biological kids, whether it's about, I mean, name anything, I question like, is this truly something I desire or is this something I think I'm supposed to desire or I just want it because she has it and it looks great with, for her. Yeah. There's that passage of scripture that says test the spirits. And it seems like we, we need to do that too with our motives, like test where, what is the spirit behind this desire? What is the spirit behind, uh, you know, this, this longing? What is the spirit behind, you know, this goal that I've set for myself? Because there's a plethora of things that motivate us and to say that they're all good would be a gross overstatement. So yeah, I love that idea of like, you got to go unearth what those motivations are. You mentioned the two day solitude retreat as one way to do that. So, you know, uh, solitude, contemplation, prayer, journaling, whatever practice that was. Um, What other practices are you talking about? Or do you think would, would be helpful for that endeavor? Is it, you know, counseling, talking to friends, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think all of that's helpful. For me, I think one of the things that's made a huge difference in my life is having a mentor and not just a mentor who I meet with and it's just like fun and we have coffee and it's like super laid back. I have I have a mentor like that, but I have one mentor who very specifically holds up a mirror for me. And when we meet, she holds up that mirror and tries to help me see what I maybe haven't seen about myself, hmm. good and bad things. So, and, or nothing, I shouldn't even use the word bad. I, I would say good and uh, things that are blind spots and that I might want to work on or invite God into do some healing. So with that mentor piece to kind of piggyback off that seeking feedback, I think it is one of the best practices in our life. Um, I learned it from working at a church here in Chicago. I think, you know, uh, my pastor is Jarrett and Jeannie Stevens from uh, soul they, city. 
right? Yeah, yeah, Soul City Church. So when I was working there on staff, I feel like one of the best takeaways from my time of being on staff was learning how to seek feedback and the importance of it. And so that's something that long after I've been on staff, I'm still implementing in my life, that practice. Seeking feedback. How, tell me more about the, how you are doing that. Yeah, so... I do it a couple of ways. Occasionally, it'll just be really organic. I will ask a really close friend, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And I want to hear the truth. Sometimes, here's the thing. Let me just give this disclaimer. I feel like people are terrified of feedback because we're like, oh my gosh, they're going to tell us all the negative things that we probably already know about ourselves or things that we don't even know. And then we're going to hate ourselves even more. That has not been my experience with feedback at all. While there are things brought to my attention that are good for me to be aware of, uh, one, I usually do already know them. So there's not really a whole lot that catches me by surprise. And two, more often, 95% of the feedback I'm given is so positive, is so encouraging, and is almost like God speaking through these people mm-hmm. to me. And it's been so life-changing. It's been so helpful. And so, yeah, the, the basic question of what's it like to be on the other side of me or to go to someone and to say, hey, next week when we meet, um, would you bring answers to these? Would you be willing to bring answers to these five questions for me? Like, what inspires you about me? What bothers you about me? What do I not know about myself? Um, I'm trying to think off my head the other two, but there's five specific questions that I got from working at Soul City that I use. And so I keep a calendar reminder. And at least once a month, I ask someone to answer those five questions for me. But I don't just ask anyone because it needs to be a person I have relational equity with who has my best interest at heart because you don't want to receive feedback from someone who, first of all, it needs to be someone who is in a pretty healthy place. If if not, it's really, it's going to be more about them than it is about you, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think to give someone a license to speak into that part of yourself when they don't have the credibility and and obviously the maturity like you're talking about, uh, it doesn't always go well. And, uh, you know, certain... Uh, lines of work and vocations uh, elicit uh, a plethora of feedback from any and every person. And to hear those with the same level of uh, respect and value as, you know, a trusted friend of someone who you've asked to speak in your life, uh, yeah, it's not the same thing. So I think you're exactly right that you, uh, in the words of Jesus, like you don't throw pearls to swine. And you don't just let anyone have you know that license to get into your life. So yeah, I think that's uh, th- again that's a, that's a great practice to help you discern what your motives are to determine where you're going. It does, and w- to bring it back to comparison, how it's helped me in that area of my life, and I think could help anyone in that area of their life, or that if that monster is there, if that is their monster that they're at battle with, is when you have people who fully know you and accept you and love you. First of all, that's like. Yeah. So amazing, right? That's like such a gift. For them to speak into things or to answer those questions and to offer you feedback, and, and really, even if they do share something that's maybe negative or you already know about yourself that you're working on, whatever, e- even if, it is overwhelmingly encouraging and positive and builds you up. And the more you can be built up, not like in this false sense of like, oh, you're the best, you're the greatest, not, not like that, but just really built up um, and and having someone hold up a mirror to say, this is your true God-given identity. This is what makes you so beautiful and so amazing. And this is why we need you. 
the more you have that spoken into your life, the easier it is to live into it and to be Mm. yourself and not get caught up trying to be like everybody else. Yeah, that's good. Now, I'll be honest, when when people just tell me how great I am, I do like that as well. And so (laughs) if Manda doesn't want that, I would let you all know that I do want that. So that's great for me. But it's also probably more substantial to to have people speak life into who you are and like the type of person that God created you to be so that you can be reminded of this is where I'm going. This is the centerpiece of who I am. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Otherwise, we end up you know, being like uh, David putting on Jonathan's, or uh, excuse me, Saul's armor and trying to be something that we're not. So yeah, yeah. that's, uh, that's what I feel like we solved comparison already. I think we've, we've got it done. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think everyone's going to be done with comparison and they're going to look into being a foster parent. And yay, that would be the best. Yeah. And this is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, we just brought heaven on earth. We, we really did. This is special. Now, if only we could get carp or as you would call him E, uh, to write an original song for the end of this episode, that would be, that's the only thing missing, I think. Mm, he, we can probably bribe him to do that with a little whiskey or something. That's, that's probably true. Uh, your podcast is uh, A Longer Table. Is that right? Did I get correct. the title correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, did he make the music? Did he make music for it? He did. Yeah. My, my, of course he did. I've tried to get my wife to make music for my podcast and she won't. Um, she said if there's a neonatal, like a neonatal crisis, she'll take care of a baby. But I'm like, that doesn't really help the podcast. Um, so, Yeah, she has her own set of, uh, of gifts yeah. and talents. And my goodness, I'm sure during this time of quarantine and COVID and everything, I'm sure she is in the trenches. So yeah. tell your wife I said thank you. Yeah, well, it's awesome. She gets free meals out of it, which is pretty cool if she wears her scrubs. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Carp, you know, he probably doesn't get free meals for uh, making your intro, I assume. No, he gets other things. <laughs> God. <laughs> and that's it and that's it well thanks Manda for the R-rated comment to end the podcast so um, bring it yep well I'm glad that you guys have a happy marriage and I'm glad you guys are doing well and um, I'll let you uh, get back to writing your book and um, I'm going to go wash hey, my hands fun. <laughs> thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.